Hello everyone and we just want to um, welcome each one of you again as you join with Kate and myself and we trust that you will be encouraged as you meet around God's word and you hear God's word. We just want to let you know that we do thank the Lord for each one of you that come on with us each week and we thank the Lord for our family, our friends, for all our children and grandchildren and for those who are serving the Lord throughout this world. We just appreciate one, each one and we pray that each week that you will be encouraged and that you'll grow a little bit more um, in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Hi everyone, really excited to be with you again. It's um, hopefully things are going well for you and this, this week we're in Jonah chapter 1 verses 3 to 6. So we're going to look at that text today. We looked at Verse 3, partly last week, where we remember, but Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He's wanting to run away from, from God and everything that God has for him. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went down into it to go, to, to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, really trying to escape. Then verse 4 reads, but the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Pretty serious. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the, threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, well, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. They're in a really terrible position, so they need a work of God here. So they're appealing to Jonah to somehow do something from his God. See, Jonah was, uh, he was spending a suitable period of his life attempting to, to run away from God, to get out of God's way, God's path, whatever. And we know that God has called him to go to Nineveh and to cry out against that great city because of their sin. God wants to work in there. God was about to burst revival into this ungodly city, and his chosen revivalist, amazingly, was Jonah. But Jonah he wasn't just a chosen revivalist. He was a, a reluctant revivalist. He didn't want to bring revival or be involved in that. And I think, if we're honest, many of us can be perhaps a little bit like Jonah. To be a genuine follower of God, we need to be individually and collectively pursuing a lifestyle of holiness. That's what our faith is actually all about, pursuing a lifestyle of holiness by which God is glorified. Holiness is a real good thing. It's an expression of someone or of a group of people who've been redeemed by Jesus, and therefore they are living publicly for Jesus, declaring he is the only way to God the Father. He's the only source of salvation for mankind today. So like Jonah, I want to suggest that it may be more natural for many of us to, to run from living such a lifestyle, and in that somehow we, we, we've convinced ourselves that we're genuine, legit, genuinely legitimate followers of the Lord Jesus. We're not living his way, we're doing our own thing, but we're convincing ourselves, it's okay, I'm right with God somehow. I want you to listen to Bible teacher Don Carson. He, he writes this to help us avoid that type of thinking. <clears throat> he writes, people do not drift toward holiness, Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience, and obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. I want you to see yourself in here, hopefully. We drift toward compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience, and we call it freedom. We drift toward superstition, and we call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control, and we call it relaxation. We slouch far toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves 
we have been liberated. Pretty serious, pretty heavy commentary there by Don Carson. That's going to bring some thoughts to your mind as you, you work your way through that. Let's move back to Jonah then. Keep all that on board, but let's move back to Jonah. Uh, God tells him to go one way to do the will and service of the Lord. And so Jonah goes in the completely opposite direction to what God has commanded him. He, he's on the boat uh, heading for Tarshish. Whenever we read uh, the Lord sending a, a great wind on the sea in verse 4. Uh, the Hebrew text uses the term hurled. Uh, God hurled a great wind upon the sea. He, he threw it like that upon the sea. And the thought is that of throwing a weapon or a spear. If we look at 1 Samuel 18, verse 11, we read of Saul casting the spear in an attempt to pin David to a wall. But of course, David escaped. But you can visualize King Saul doing that. He thrusts the spear in, in that way. So God throws this wild storm onto the sea where, where, where the boat that Jonah is, is, is in is going to be sailing there. We read then in verse 4 of, um, of it being such a great wind, a massive wind. And previously in verse 2 of our text, we read of Nineveh being a great city. So with a great wind, a great storm, and a great city. Pastor Tim Keller uh, suggests that because Jonah refused to go to a great city, God sent him into a great storm. That's pretty big, isn't it? Basically, the lesson to learn here as a follower of God is that if you and I choose to sin, we will experience storms in life. Now, we have to balance this understanding with an appreciation that not every difficulty or problem that we might experience as believers is a, a result of sin. We recognize from the book of Job, recognize that from the book of Job, that, that God permits his children to experience trials and difficulties of, of all types without their ever having been involved in any form of sin. What we do need to recognize is that God will punish our sin, however. He won't simply overlook our sin because we claim to belong to him. Well, remember Don Carson said, we're not going to just overlook sin. He's not going to do that. Well, because of sin, Jonah finds himself in the midst of a storm. Uh, Jonah, the crew, the ship, they're right in the eye of the storm. They're in the, the place that nobody ever wants to be. That is no one except God himself. Oftentimes, God seems to do his best work in his children. Whenever things are at their worst for us, <clears throat> whenever we're really struggling with problems, God's at work in there somewhere. God never wants sin to reside or remain in our lives. But somehow, like a child, Holds a, holds a special teddy bear. We believers seem to hold on to sin. We love it. We enjoy it. And in doing so, we often miss some of the Lord's great blessings that he wants to bestow upon us. I want you to listen to what Tim Keller writes about, uh, how he writes about this in, in, in the life of the believer. He says, sin is a suicidal action of the will upon itself. It is like taking an addicting drug. At first, it may feel wonderful, but every time it gets harder to, to not do it again, then he says, here's just one example. When you indulge yourself in bitter thoughts, it feels so satisfying to, to fantasize about payback. I'm sure you've experienced that. But slowly and surely, it will enlarge your capacity for self-pity, erode your ability to trust and enjoy relationships, and generally drain the happiness out of your own everyday life. Sin always hardens the conscience, locks you in the prison of your own defensiveness and rationalizations, and eats you up slowly from the inside, he says. All sin has a, a mighty storm attached to it. The image is powerful because even in our technologically advanced society, we cannot control the weather. You cannot bribe a storm or baffle it with logic or rhetoric. You will, you will be sinning against the Lord, and you may be sure that your sin will find you out 
says Numbers 32, 32. So that's where our sin's going to take us. Now, now Joel wasn't the only one caught up in this storm of, uh, of sin. The whole crew of the ship were experiencing the very same storm. So if we put ourselves into the sandals of the, the ship's crew, if we can do that mentally, we begin to recognize that as we live here in this society, it's impossible for us to avoid the consequences of sin all around us. We're going to be tainted in some way. We live in a fallen, broken world, all because of the sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden. So we're all tainted. We're all problematic. We're all troubled by sin. Basically, his sin was this. I want to do my thing and not God's thing. That's what Adam was thinking. I'm going to eat from the tree that God says, don't eat from that tree, Adam. You can eat from all the rest, but don't do that one. Adam just went. He wanted to do his own thing. I'm going to walk right into the eye of the storm of life, believing I can handle it, was the philosophy. Believing I can get myself through it. Believing I am the master of my vessel, the vessel that I refer to as life. Yet God is gracious, so he will often use our storms in life to help us grow in our walk with him. He wants to bring us out of that problematic storm. He's going to put us in a place of walking with him. Now, now let's try to be honest here. Whenever we're caught in the middle of a, of a life storm, we're generally not thinking to ourselves, oh, great, I'm so pleased to be here. God is at work in my life. Most of us, I assume, want to get out of the storm and get out of it as quickly as we possibly can. Don't want to sit in that storm. Don't want to experience that we want out of it. Uh, as quickly as we can. William Carey, that great missionary to India, was going through some really difficult trials, if you want storms in his life. And uh, here's what he said about it all. God has a sovereign right to dispose of us as he pleases. We ought to acquiesce in all that God does with us and to us. Let's work with God here. He's doing something amazing, something good. So let God do his work in your life, which is always for his glory and always for your best. And he might do that through storms. He might do it through trials, through difficulties. That's how he may do it. These ungodly seamen were about to experience the grace of God in their lives uh, and the circumstances that they're in, but by no choosing of their own. They weren't calling out to God saying, we believe, we believe. They weren't doing that. We read in verse 5, of every man crying out to his God. All sorts of gods, hoping for some sort of saving intervention as the storm was beyond anything that they'd ever seen or experienced before. This is a really, really bad storm. They're frantically throwing the cargo overboard in the hope to, to lighten their load and somehow to survive this uninvited storm. And as they're busily doing this, Jonah, the problem, if you want, was below deck, fast asleep, oblivious to what's happening. But asleep was really his attempt to escape the reality of him rejecting the path of God for his life and instead choosing to go his own way. He didn't want to face anything. He's sleeping it off, hoping it'll all work out. It'll all come good. It'll all work out for me. So in verse 6, we see the captain of the vessel confront the sleeping prophet. And he calls out to Jonah, arise, call on your God. Ironically, in the Hebrew language, the captain uses the same words that God used in verse 2, telling Jonah to arise, Jonah, go to Nineveh. So the, the, the tragic irony of this is the pagan captain pointing God's prophet to call out to God, telling a believer, this is what you should do. It should have been God's prophet telling the seaman to, to call on the only true God. That's the only way we can get out of this and get help. But here they're having to tell him, the prophet what to do. So here's the problem. Jonah 
God's redeemed follower wasn't what wasn't willing to do God's work in God's ordained way. He didn't want to take the good news message of salvation to the people of Nineveh. In his writing, Why Revival Ties, the late Leonard Ravenhill, great little book, writes this. And I think his words can apply to both Jonah and to ourselves. He says, brothers, if we will do God's work in God's way, God's time, with God's power, we shall have God's blessing and the devil's curses. When God opens the windows of heaven to bless us, the devil opens the door of hell to blast us. God's smile means the devil's frown. Mere preachers, he says, may help anybody and hurt nobody. But prophets, those who are proclaiming God's truth here, will stir everybody and madden somebody. The preacher may go with the crowd. The prophet goes against it. A man freed, fired, and filled with God will be branded unpatriotic because he speaks against his nation's sins. Unkind because his tongue is a two-edged sword. Unbalanced because the weight of his preach of preaching opinion is against him. The preacher will be heralded. The prophet, he says, will be hounded because he's telling the people not what they want to hear, but what they need to hear. So that's really what we've got to do in our walk with God as believers in him. So your message might not be popular, but as it is God's message, every one of us who believes in God, who's a follower of Jesus, redeemed by his blood, we're called to tell that message around the world, wherever God calls us to be. Now, from our text, there's several truths that I think we can learn from here. Number one, the world around us is going to judge us as to how we treat people. They're watching, they're looking, they're going to say, you treated them wrongly. In our text, uh, they, these seamen have exhausted their own skills as seafarers, and they've even called out to each and every God that they can think of in, in a bid for help. But, but somehow, and everything falling apart, they, they sense there's something more. They sense there might be some hope here with this man, Jonah, this prophet of Yahweh, there might be some hope. So the captain, perhaps sarcastically, says to God's prophet, perhaps, perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. In times of desperation, the world, I believe, will look to the church. While there's been a, a growing trend, trend towards people embracing a, a non-religious lifestyle, according to Pew Research Center surveys in 2018-2019, uh, COVID pandemic has, has pushed people um, unexpectedly, if you want, to consider their religious beliefs and affiliations. And then whether that's, don't know where that's going to go, but there's, there's benefits in some of that. So how we live as Christians, what we say as Christians, is absolutely vital as to the testimony that we have before the world around us. In his book, The Judgment of Jonah, author Jacques Ellul says this, he writes these words, these Joppa sailors are pagans, or in modern terms, non-Christians. But the lot of non-Christians and Christians is, is linked. They're in the same boat. The safety of all depends on what each does. They're in the same storm, subject to the same peril, and they want the same outcome. And the ship typifies our situation, he writes. If a community is troubled by, by drug abuse, sexual misconduct, lack of job opportunity or, or whatever, then believer and unbeliever alike experience those difficulties. And how we, the redeemed followers of Jesus Christ, navigate our way through those issues serves as our testimony to the unsaved all around us. Tragically, in the context of our, our own our Bible reading, God's servant and God's prophet Jonah appears to care less as to what happens to anybody. He's not worried, he's not interested. He's just all about Jonah. 
Number two, the unbelievers, the unsaved, can teach us believers many important things in life. Uh, the captain and his crew are more capable of handling the storm than Jonah would ever be. After all, he, he's not a seaman. That's not his forte. He's not qualified that way. Uh, the crew have done absolutely nothing to put themselves in this position where, where their lives are completely at risk. Let me put it like this to you. If you were about to have brain surgery, would you want the elder or deacon of your church to perform that surgery? Or would you want prefer someone who's actually qualified, such as a, a neurosurgeon? This neurosurgeon uh, doesn't believe in God. He's a complete atheist. In fact, he's openly antagonistic against Christianity, but he has never, ever lost anyone whom he's operated on. He has a 100% success record. You see, the unbeliever can help us. God can and will use the unsaved of our world today. That's what he does. That's what he's done throughout history. Uh, take, for example, King Cyrus from Isaiah 45, verse 1. Here's what we read. Thus says the Lord to his anointed. Okay, so this is God speaking, the sovereign God. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I'm using Cyrus, says God. Cyrus came to rule God's appointment and that, at that particular moment in history, and God was going to use him. And with the use of the term anointed, the unbelieving Cyrus was used of God to, to shepherd God's people, Israel. Look at Isaiah 44, 28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple, your foundation shall be led. You see, God's in control. So the, the farmer doesn't have to be a Christian, for example, to enjoy fruitful gain for his labor. And this, this farmer may very well be able to teach or to help or to assist Christian farmers as to better ways to get a yield from their crops. God blesses and uses both the believing and unbelieving at his own discretion and his own choosing because God is sovereign. And as John, as John lies in his bunk, looking here up at the captain, He's a man who's been incredibly blessed by God. God has graciously brought Jonah into a right relationship with himself. God has forgiven Jonah his sin. God has called him his prophet. And so far, Jonah has been nothing but disobedient. Now, now let's not be too hard. Let's not be too hard on Jonah. Instead, let's bring the circumstances to our own doorstep. The, the, these unbelieving sailors are showing more understanding of God than Jonah is. They cry out to God in desperation through the prophet Jonah. They have a hope that, that, that Jonah's God is the great God and he can save them. Uh, Jonah should have been in prayer to God for the soul of every person on board that ship. He should have been praying to God to stop the storm. Have you prayed agonizingly for the salvation of your every family member? Have you really brought that before God? Have you asked God to intervene in the storms of their life and to, to somehow minister to them graciously? Uh, do, do you pray that your church will be strong in, in Christ and will flourish and mature and appreciate his truth? Is God in his spirit standing over you and saying, arise, believer, uh, call on me to act. I want to intervene. Arise and do something. Let me do it. Uh, do you think that you can get through the storm on your own? See, Jonah seemed to think that he could. 
He appears to have little or no emotion for these sailors and, and for their plight. He appears to have almost a, a hatred towards the people of Nineveh to whom he was being sent. Ruth and I grew up in a society that was horribly fractured. We would hear preachers constantly telling us that a, another religion was sinful, evil, and deceived. I want to be clear. I believe that every person outside of uh, a walk with Christ and biblical Christianity is in some form deceived. But whenever you hear that repeated over and over and over again about a certain group, you become somewhat emotionless towards them. You have little or no sympathy for their eternal plight. So it's not too difficult to become like Jonah in that sense. Not too difficult at all. Let me give you an illustration, an example, as to what it might look like. I once served in a church where um, the, the Australians decided that they, they, they wouldn't let another church group who met in the premises use the right on mower. You can't mow our grass because you're not from our culture. You can't use the coffee duck because that's ours and you'll, you'll mess it up. You can't use the sound system because that's ours and we do it this way. Yeah, you're, you're not qualified enough. Only whenever we changed those practices did the church begin to flourish and to grow. We had to recognize we're one, one in Christ. You see, as believers, we need to be interested in the common good of every person, recognizing them to have been created in the image of God and having worth and merit of purpose to him. So as we learn from James, the book of James, whenever you see someone who's in need of clothing and of food, guess what? It becomes your responsibility. You're knowledgeable as to what you can do, and you must respond in some way. Remember how James warned us in, in chapter 213 of his letter, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Judgment with no mercy attached, will be shown to anyone who's not been merciful. We're called to be merciful. Jonah should have been merciful. And as Jonah begins to get up off his bunk, that's exactly where he sits with God, in a place of righteous judgment. He's making statements. He's thinking thoughts. This is what I want God to do. And no one can disagree with that because God is the ultimate judge, and he will do with what with the circumstances and the people, whatever he chooses. But I want to leave you with this question. What about you? We've kind of discovered where Jonah is at with God. He's struggling big time. He's walking a different direction. What about you? As of today, where are you at with God? Have you been living for him, following him, walking with him? Are you wandering on your own path, hoping that somehow God will, God will bless you? He's bound to because you're a nice person. Remember, he's not going to ignore your sin just because you belong to him. Remember, Don Carson told us all these things about the challenge of what we, how we interpret things and interpret sin, interpret life. We get it messed up. So, so let's get this right. As of today, where are you at with God? Do you belong to Christ? Are you in a relationship with God? Do you believe his word? Do you follow his word? Do you walk in that light? That's what it means to be a believer. Jonah had lost his way. Don't lose your way. Let me pray for you. Lord, I bring to you each and every person listening, watching uh, this, uh, this little production. And I pray, Lord, that you'll take your word, that you'll use your word from the, the book of Jonah to minister to our souls, to our lives, to challenge us, to confront us, and to motivate us toward holiness.
motivate us paying a, to, to be a, to be a people that's clearly a people publicly who belong to you who follow your truth and live your truth so help us we pray lord we get it wrong so often like jonah we seem to be lying in that bunk and not wanting to face the realities of life. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to rise at that bunk and help us to go forward and to tell this world your amazing gospel message that you're a great, merciful God who loves mankind, you're gracious, loving, and you want to save souls. But should they choose not to, then you will judge. Help us, we pray, Lord, to be faithful with your truth and bless each and every person, Lord, that chooses to walk in your way uh, this day and this moment on. We ask all of this in your name. We ask it all for your glory. Amen. Thank you, everyone, and have a great week. Contact us if you've got questions or comments, whatever. Love to hear from you. Thank you. See you.